Psalm 92. Psalm 92. We've been reading the Bible together in a year, just, just about two more months, and we will be done, and you will have accomplished that goal. You will have got to the top of the mountain, and then you will turn over from December 31st to January 1st, and you will do it again. Taking a break from last few weeks in Jeremiah, uh, this week I thought, uh, why not a song? Psalm 92. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. To the music of the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know Fools do not understand that though the wicked spring up like grass and all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are forever exalted. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish, all evildoers will be scattered. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. Fine oils have been poured on me. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Planted in the house of the Lord... They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green, proclaiming, The Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no wickedness in him. Before we consider uh, this passage, we will pray, but I'll make one announcement uh, that wasn't part of the original set of announcements. Uh, on November 11th, it is Remembrance Day, the 100th anniversary of the ending of the First World War, so a special one at that, uh, but we're also going to be having a baptismal service. So if anyone uh, is here who uh, would like to be baptized or is interested in baptism, uh, come and talk to me and uh, we can make those arrangements and uh, we'd be delighted to uh, have anyone who is uh, properly suited for it by faith in Jesus Christ uh, baptized on that day. So if you've been thinking about baptism, please come and talk to me. Uh, We will be having a service, Lord willing, November 11th. Let's pray. So our Father, uh, here we are told that it is good, it is right to praise you. And so we ask that even now uh, we will be able to do that, that we will be able to praise and honor you and worship you 
through your word, as we listen, as we think, as we meditate, as we emote, help us to uh, occupy a space that is pleasing and honoring to you. Guide every one of us, uh, including myself, Lord, as we look to your word. Uh, we stand in a relationship of desperate dependence to you and on your spirit. We ask that you will be glorified, God, by all that takes place. You know the circumstances of our lives. You know the events of our week. You know the, the events of, of the day. And so we come to you, Lord, asking for you to give us what we need. Uh, we come to you asking you to be our rock, uh, to be our strength and, and our wind. Lord, help us, to, help us to wait on you. Uh, and to hope in you. But Lord, fulfill uh, the desires of our heart as we desire you. Feed us this morning. Nourish us. Give us spiritual sustenance. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you... Uh, will have a Bible that has a superscription above the psalm that says a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day, or something along those lines, a psalm for the Sabbath day. Uh, as much as Sabbath theme does occur in the Psalter, that is in different psalms, this is the only psalm that is explicitly dedicated to that theme of Sabbath celebration. It's the only psalm that recognizes how good it is to have an experience of Sabbath with the Lord. You will recall, of course, that really Sabbath is, cannot be detached conceptually from the idea of rest. This is, this is a psalm that celebrates what it is to find rest in the Lord. It's the only one that does that. What does it look like to actually have rest? What does it look like to actually find Sabbath? Well, the New Testament is going to show how all Sabbath themes are fulfilled by Jesus. So, it becomes, in my judgment, both a biblical and a theological mistake to connect Sabbath to a day. The New Testament doesn't, doesn't really permit that. Uh, the New Testament connects Sabbath not to a day, but to a person. Sabbath is bound up with Jesus. Uh, he is the fulfillment of Sabbath rest. And so if any understanding of Sabbath puts more emphasis on a 24-hour period of time, than it does on fulfillment in Christ, you have not appreciated the development of the concept across the canon. The fulfillment of rest is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. In fact, I think you can make a pretty good argument that uh, not only is the Sabbath find fulfillment in Jesus, but if the Hebrew people were reminded in the Old Covenant law that you had rest on one day a week, the seventh day, it wasn't one day a week, it was explicitly the seventh day, that in the New Covenant we rest 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, 
in Jesus. That is, we are never not experiencing Sabbath rest in Christ. And for that reason, our songs and our celebration should be continual because we are always in Christ. And that gives us reason to celebrate. Now, having said that, what is going on on Sabbath day that causes this celebration? The first thing the psalmist says is this. It is good to praise the Lord. The word good means appropriate or pleasant in this context. That is, it is appropriate to praise the Lord. It is right to praise the Lord. It fits to praise the Lord. And the reason for this, of course, is that the Lord is actually worthy of being praised. He is worth praising. He is worth celebrating. Uh, This is one of the reasons why uh, idolatry in all of its forms is so offensive to God and also so damaging to people. We are forever praising spontaneously uh, what we value. In fact, C.S. Lewis notes, I think rightly, that you basically don't feel that you have completed your experience of appreciation unless you've been able to voice that expression of appreciation in praise. Not flattery, uh, but genuine, heartfelt praise. Uh, And so when we start valuing things in God's place, what we're doing is we're ascribing a worth to these things that they can't possibly have. That's what idolatry really is. Uh, Whether it's literally bowing down to to a deity uh, in, in statue form, or if it's prizing power or money or pleasure or whatever it is that we prize, sort of in a metaphorical sense, idolatrously, it's always damaging because we are ascribing ultimate worth to something which can never be ultimate. Only God can be ultimate. And so it is good to praise him because he is the one who alone is actually worthy of our highest praise, of our total dedication, heart, mind, body, and soul. Every faculty is to be devoted to to God, And when, when you have that orientation of loving God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, is when, you, when you see his worth, that is the foundation on which you can then build appreciation and love and valuation of created things and people. Uh, that is, it, it is not wrong. In fact, it, it would be wrong not to sometimes uh, acknowledge the worth, the value that people have. But we must never put people in the place of God. We must never put anything in the created realm in the place of God. He alone is ultimately worthy of praise. It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name almost high. So, so this legitimizes, I mean, we don't need to legitimize this at all, really. In verse 3, we'll give you the ten-string lyre and the melody of the harp. We don't need to legitimize or fight for uh, sort of diversity in instrumentation uh, as we worship God. You, you read the Psalms, one is very clear. Uh, is that we are to enlist whatever is good and edifying and profitable, whatever, whatever is beautiful. Uh, we are to enlist those things in the praise of God. And, and so one of the things that you know, we, we, we don't want to draw attention to the musicians, lest we want to draw attention to the instruments that the musicians use. But it is wonderful uh, to be able to worship God with a diversity of instrumentation uh, that provides a richness which allows us to sort of be drawn into uh, the worship of God. So we, we thank God for that. God delights in diversity of instrumentation. But what do we use that instrumentation for? It's not an end to itself. It is to proclaim God's love in the morning and his faithfulness 
at night. Uh, love is chesed, this rich Hebrew concept that, uh, that you're familiar with that we can't really translate into one English word because it's, it's too nuanced and diverse. There's too much weight in this one term. So sometimes uh, it'll be translated in older versions as loving kindness or simply as love, perhaps sometimes as faithfulness, sometimes as mercy. Uh, and, and you sort of work through all of these different things. Uh, it, it's this, this incredible expressed love and utter commitment and fidelity that God has to his people. That he will never let them down. He, he may not always do things the way they want him to do it, but he will never ultimately let them down. He, he loves them too much. He's moved by compassion for them. Uh, he has simply chosen to, we're told in Deuteronomy, to set his chesed upon the people so that they are the objects of his love. And he will treat them accordingly. He chooses to bless them in covenant love. And as the recipient of that, I mean, then the people are to proclaim it. They're to make it known. This is the kind of God that we serve. He's a God who blesses us in utter love. He is faithful. These are the two, we're going to be very careful with this, but these are two of the very, very important elements of God's nature and name that he revealed to the people. Or in Exodus 34, 6, God passes by Moses. He proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness are, are, are tied together so often through Scripture. God's love and faithfulness. His love isn't a fickle love. His love, his love doesn't, doesn't fade over time. His love doesn't doesn't alter. His love is immutable, steadfast. It's eternal. It's eternally set upon his people before the foundation of the world. Before God says, let there be light and there is light, God has set his love upon his people. That's the kind of God that he is. The psalmist says, what, what better... Oh, to have rest, and in that rest to proclaim the love and faithfulness of God. What better use of time? The Levites in the tabernacle and then in the temple system, they would offer sacrifices both morning and evening. Uh, they, wanted to, uh, they wanted to begin their day. Israel began its day praising God, thanking God for his love, thinking about God's faithfulness. Began its day that way. Ended its day that way. Ushered in its night that way. Thanking God, praising God for his love and his faithfulness. In some ways, in some ways, recognizing that God doesn't sleep. It's like regularly saying good morning and good night. Expressing love. Expressing commitment. Expressing thought. Lord, you are on my mind. Lord, you are in my heart. Your love and your faithfulness moves me. I think about you. I start my day. I praise you. I end my day. I praise you. Four, verse four. You make me glad 
by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. This is a serious question in terms of diagnostic of spiritual health. And I'm not trying to elicit a response from you, but just, just in your own heart. When's the last time you've been glad in contemplating what God has done? When's the last time you have experienced joy when you think about what the hands of the Lord have accomplished? This ought to be part of our worship experience. We we ought to be people who, when we think about what God has done, are people who are glad. We should be glad at the deeds of the Lord. We should have joy when we contemplate the works of his hands. How great are your works, Lord! How profound your thoughts. Interesting shift there, actually, from three things. You're told three times what your hands have done, your works, your deeds, and then all of a sudden it's thoughts. But you can't really detach those two things. The great deeds of the Lord stem from his thoughtfulness. The great works of God's hands are motivated by his vision and understanding. So he sees what he wants to do. But all the great things he's doing, all the things he's working for, are first in his mind. All of creation is in the mind of God before he acts to bring it about. He declares the end from the beginning. He has a plan. And he comprehends all things inside of that plan in ways that we can't possibly imagine. One of the most amazing things about God's thoughts is that, that and this is to me actually, uh, to me, to me, not necessarily to you, but to me this is the, the most incredible thing about the mind of God. I can accept that God knows everything about the universe. That's a finite space. Uh, that God knows how many molecules there are constituting the planet Jupiter. I, I, can, I can understand that. I can even understand that God knows everything that could have been and isn't and will never be. That is, God knows how everything could have been if every contingency was different. God knows what this world would be like if if you didn't exist, but everyone else did. Uh, He he knows what the world would have been like if if the tree right there outside the walls had had one less leaf or one more leaf. God knows everything. Change any contingency. He knows every possibility. And that's pretty amazing. But more amazing than all that to me is the fact that God fully comprehends himself. God's mind is so perfect that he grasps and comprehends deity itself. God knows God. This being that we, that we worship but, but can't possibly ever begin to to get beyond the very, the, the very tip of the iceberg of all that he is, and even in eternity, there will be infinite depths of his being that we will be exploring, but never comprehending. We will be swimming deeper down into who he is, but never getting close to the bottom. There will always be an infinite distance between what we know of him and who he is, and yet he comprehends himself perfectly. How profound your thoughts. And when we finally have rest, to be able to rest, not only looking at all the things that God has done, but contemplating his mind and the way that he thinks. In contrast, 
Senseless people do not know, fools do not understand that all evildoers flourish, they will be destroyed forever. The wicked spring up like grass, and all evildoers flourish. All evildoers flourish. Yet, they will be destroyed forever. Just hold on to that for a moment. But you, Lord, are forever exalted, in contrast to the wicked. The wicked don't understand anything. They flourish, then they're destroyed. But the Lord understands everything and is exalted forever. For surely your enemies, Lord, surely your enemies will perish. All evildoers will be scattered. Why? You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. The horn, uh, like a rhinoceros horn, is the symbol of strength and defense. Now, interestingly enough, we have no idea, verse 10, you've exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. No one knows actually what the wild ox is. That's an interpretive, that's an interpretation decision. Uh, the Greeks, when they translated the Old Testament, far more creatively, actually, and far more compellingly, beautiful image, they translated this verse into Greek as, you have exalted my horn like that of a unicorn. That's their translation. So, Fantastic translation. Uh, think, about, think about how how beautiful and powerful that image is. That that in God I have the strength like a unicorn. By the way, the Greeks also knew something that some of us don't know, and that is, unicorns are real. So it wasn't even mythological. Uh, there, the guy was looking in his backyard, saw a unicorn, and said, "That's that's what it's like to be that strong." Fine oils have been poured on me, or fresh oil. I'm anointed again. Uh, the, the Lord is, is anointing me again for his service. I'm set apart for him. He's taking care of me. He loves me. He's giving me strength. He's giving me what I need. My eyes have seen the defeat of my adversaries. My ears have heard the rout of my wicked foes. Actually, the end, the end of verse 11 is a broken line. It actually breaks off in the text. My ears have heard. And then just the, the rest of how that verse finishes is gone. So it's a supplied translation, the rout of my wicked foes. But it's something like, the idea is pretty clear, that the enemies have come against you. Your eyes have seen their defeat, and then your ears have heard some sort of reversal for your enemy, some sort of victory for you. But, unlike the wicked, so very different, but yet, yet the same in one way. The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. Flourish, in verses 12 and 13, is the exact same word that you get in verse 7 where you're told that evildoers flourish. So how do we figure that out? How do we unpack that? Well, Psalm 1, uh, which I read uh, after the announcements this morning, it's very clear that the righteous, those who meditate on the law of the Lord, who do not keep company with the wicked, they will be like trees planted by streams of water which will yield its fruit in season. 
not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. And so there's a, there's a substance in the experience of the righteous. There's a permanency in the experience of the righteous that you simply do not get uh, in the experience of the wicked. The wicked are destroyed forever. So, so the, the evildoers do flourish. They do. <coughs> but they flourish like grass flourishes. Their flourishing is sort of predicated on their nature. And so just like grass flourishes, it, it comes up and then it's gone. That's like the evildoer. They experience some temporal flourishing and then they are no more. But in contrast, the righteous do not flourish like grass. They flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. Very, very fine commentator, uh, William Van Gemeren, who's written a reasonably helpful uh, commentary on Psalms, notes that in, ter- in terms of the palm tree and the cedar of Lebanon, he says, quote, Both trees are symbolic of strength, longevity, and desirability. Strength, longevity, and desirability. That's how they're used metaphorically in the thought world of that time. So the wicked flourish quickly and then are no more. They're destroyed. The righteous are like trees, special trees, uh, trees that are renowned sort of for fruitfulness and, and, and permanency. Uh, that's what you are like if you are righteous. That's the sort of flourishing that you will experience, not just for a little while and then to be destroyed, but in a continual and ongoing sense. And why is that? Because you are planted in the house of the Lord and in the courts of God. Uh, God has taken you sort of into his, his own property. Uh, you are part of his garden. Uh, you are part of what he is cultivating. He is, he is working in you. He has planted you in his soil. And, and, and he is going to work in you to produce a harvest of righteousness, to produce the fruit of the Spirit. He wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to be abundant. He wants you to flourish. And so he, 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 doesn't, he, he doesn't treat you uh, as an absentee landlord treats their property. He doesn't buy a plot of ground and, and then and plant a bunch of trees and then just sort of step back and, and, and withdraw to his palace and hope that it all turns out someday. No, he comes along and, and, and he cares for you. You're right there in his compound. Right in his course. Right in his house. He's watching over you to make sure that you flourish. To make sure that you're fruitful. In fact, the grammatical construction in Hebrew in verse 13, although it uses the same word for flourish as verse 12 and verse 7, it's constructed grammatically as an intensive, which means this. It means that not only do you flourish, you flourish intensely. There's, there's, there's an intensity to your flourishing. So if we were to then add words, if we were to add modifying words to it to sort of bring out its force, we'd say something like, uh, in, the, in the courts of God, the righteous will flourish greatly, or you know, the righteous will flourish uh, abundantly. You could say the righteous will flourish bountifully. 
Or the righteous will flourish gratuitously. That is, there's just so much grace God's pouring in that we're more fruitful than we need to be or we ought to be even. We flourish deeply. We flourish so much. Because God is the one who is pouring into us all the time. The righteous will flourish. They don't even have the option. Because God is going to have a fruitful people. God is going to make sure that they grow. They will still bear fruit in old age. They will stay fresh and green. And that doesn't mean that you will find a sort of fountain of youth. Uh, you know, there is eternal life bound up in a relationship with God through Jesus. But we are going to age. Uh, our abilities physically are going to decline. If we live long enough, uh, our, our mental abilities will likely experience decline as well. And yet, yet, the righteous will still bear fruit in old age. It will not be the fruit of their younger years, but it will still be fruitful. Even in the nursing home, the righteous bear fruit. Even in the palliative care ward, the righteous bear fruit. Because God is the one who is pouring into their lives. In fact, there, there are types of growth and witness that are impossible in times of health and strength and vitality in you. It's just, just impossible. And so we are promised that if you are righteous, you will flourish at every stage of your life. The righteous will flourish forever because they are in the court of God. Now that does not mean, does not mean that the righteous will always feel that they are in ideal growing conditions. It does not mean that the righteous will be exempted from the storms of life. It does not mean what is, what is even so much worse than storm, which can, be, which can be climactic but done, even if it lays, even if it leaves lasting consequences. What's even worse than storm is drought. To feel parched and dry and empty and broken and cracked and barren. But even in those circumstances, the righteous will flourish intensely in the courts of our God. And what will we do? We will proclaim the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there is no wickedness in him. Why is it good to praise the Lord? It is good to praise the Lord because although evildoers flourish, the righteous flourish permanently because of the Lord's love and faithfulness.
He is upright. So many people uh, are characterized by being evildoers, but the Lord is upright. You can trust him. He is my rock. Though everything around me gives way, he is my rock. He is my fortress. Sort of a, a, a mixing of metaphors here, but but imagine, imagine a, a, a strong and, and beautiful and desirable tree, you know, mixing organic and, and architectural metaphors. A strong tree sort of planted right into the rock. If, if the rock could be soil to the tree, how secure that tree would be with roots down deep into the rock. And that's our God. He is our rock. We are planted in Him. We have nothing to fear. Because there is no wickedness in Him. You know, there, there, there really isn't. There actually isn't any evil in God at all. Not even a little trace. Not, not even the smallest amount. There, there's no wickedness in Him. The, the, the same, the same cannot be said for you. It can almost be said for me on some days, but not frequently. Now, there is no wickedness in him. What's that like? What's that like? To be a being with no wickedness at all. I have no idea. I can't possibly imagine it. You know, frankly, it is a lot easier to imagine morally being the devil than it is to imagine being God. At least for me. What's it like to have no wickedness at all? Well, friends, One day, one day you'll know if you're in Christ. One day, you're going to be a being in Jesus in whom there is no wickedness at all. That's your future. Oh, you can, you, you, you can keep your, your streets of gold if the exchange is for a heart of gold. I'll take that heart any day. Over any of the even if it's well, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more. Yeah, yeah, yeah fine, fine. Just, just, just please. There's no more wickedness for once, either environmentally or even worse internally. And that's why ultimately the righteous will flourish forever, because there's a day coming when we actually will be really, truly perfectly righteous. Utterly and absolutely in the right before God. Because we will have the righteousness of Christ not only clothing us as it does now so we're acceptable to God, but we won't only be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, it will be infused in us. It will be our character. And we will be righteous from the inside out.
And that's what fruitfulness really is. It's acting out of the conformity to the image of Jesus Christ in one day. One day. Soon and very soon. We are going to see the King. And that will be our experience forever. The righteous will flourish. Well, it is good to praise the Lord with a variety of musical instruments. So I'm going to ask our musicians to come now and lead us in our prayers.